1: You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com slash Therapy30 to schedule a free
0: consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com slash Therapy30. C-13 Originals at the close of the last episode, which was also the close of part two of this podcast, I read to you a letter written by Tracy's younger sister, Rachel, to the LA Times back in 2003, when Tracy's memoir, Underneath It All, was published. It's a thunderbolt, and I'm worried that it might have missed you, so I'm going to pull from it a few key lines. I love my sister, but I hate what she's doing. Her book is misleading and self-aggrandizing, Tracy's account contains factual errors and turns in an event, being raped, that, frankly, I just don't think ever happened. My sister has hurt many people over the years with her deceptions and half-truths. Sadly, she still does. As indictments go, it's a humdinger. Basically, Rachel is declaring underneath it all, full of it. Full of it about even so monumentally serious a matter as rape, and all of a sudden, the Tracy Lord story as told by the adult industry, which could have been dismissed as hopelessly biased. Like, oh yeah, of course porn people are calling Tracy a liar. She exposed them as the low-life scumbags that they are. Plus she nearly put them out of business. Appears vindicated because Rachel Kuzma, not a member of the adult industry, a member of Tracy's own family, i.e. someone who presumably isn't impelled by animus or revenge, is talking about Tracy in similar terms. She's saying that Tracy, Tracy's book too, is chronically dishonest. If you use Rachel's letter to write off Tracy's version of the story, then this podcast so far has been essentially a nonfiction rendering of Gone Girl. Gillian Flynn's pop sensation of a novel turned David Fincher's pop sensation of a movie. Think about it, the female protagonist, who at first seems to be a fragile and blameless victim, fighting for her very life, as a passel of evil men scheme to bring her down, is revealed as a bull-faced manipulator and borderline sociopath. These men not her tormentors, but her patsies. Which makes this podcast, like Gone Girl, the most savage of comedies. Because the scam Tracy ran isn't just cunning, isn't just masterful or expert. It is, in its dark and warped way, fun The adult industry, notorious for taking advantage of young women, has itself been taken advantage of by a young woman. Tracy has forced it into the role of a grieved innocent. She has it clutching its pearls and muttering, Wow, I never, while someone fetches the smelling salts. An outrageous reversal of the accepted order. She is, therefore, not only the ideal noir heroine, the ne plus ultra of femme fatales, but the unlikeliest of feminist icons. In the guise of prey, of a weak and pretty girl, she has single-handedly almost wiped out a business that the straight world sees as strictly exploitive, run by predators for predators. Even better, she got away with it. Here's the thing though, Ashley and I don't want to use Rachel's letter to write off Tracy's version of the story. We want to write off, or at any rate put to the side, both versions of the story, Tracy's and the adult industries. In our opinion, both are problematic and are problematic in the same way. They're too simple, too black and white. The characters in them are either pure villain or pure victim. In fact, they're the same story. The only true difference between them is that the villain in the first is the victim in the second, and vice versa. They are, above all else, tidy. Which is why their answers to the question, who ratted out Tracy, feel somehow wrong or incomplete solve the mystery without solving anything. And besides, Ashley and I have been around the block enough times to know that Tidy is a crock and a cheat, solely for the movies. Real life is always messier, always more complicated and ambiguous, always unresolved. A fucked up, snarled up, rat's nest gangbang of mixed motivations and intentions. So what we'll do is this. In part three, we'll start fresh come at the material without an axe to grind or a narrative to promote. We're gonna leave the valley, go back to Redondo Beach. Indeed, we're gonna leave Tracy behind as well. It's Nora we wanna see. I'm Lily Analik, and this is Once Upon a Time in the Valley featuring Ashley West.
2: Part three, the Nora Kuzma story.
0: Redondo Beach is our destination, but first, a quick stop in Steubenville, Ohio. Nora is 12 when she and her mother and sisters leave. But before they go, we want to convey some sense of the place. Because it's not any old town USA. It's drastic. Masculine and mute, grim and grimy. Steubenville is her unaffectionate nickname for it.
2: In 1978, while Nora was still living there, The Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken, about a group of young men, steel workers, like her father, Lewis, came out. The first hour of the movie is set in Clareton, Pennsylvania. Much of it was shot, however, in and around Steubenville. Nora, according to Underneath It All, actually watched it being shot. We spoke to film historian David Thompson about the Deer Hunter's location.
3: It's a very working-class, conservative place and don't forget the importance and the power of the scenes in the furnace or the foundry whatever it is the idea of sort of steel actually being made and this really very unusual portrait of hard right working class people they aren't the wonderful workers that you might see in, say, a Ford or a Capra film. You know these people vote hard Republican or even further to the right if you offered them something. These are not noble people. These are not people who, whose lives are going to turn out well, whatever happens. And I think that people on the coastal strips simply don't know what life in the interior is like. Not the whole interior, obviously, but the dead, drab parts of this country, which are vast and are profound. There are women in The Deer Hunter. Meryl Streep, for one.
2: What in the world of this movie is life like for them? David Thompson again.
3: Well, the women, I guess, do what the men expect of them. They line up to be married. They will have children, I suppose. They will probably be betrayed quite quickly, and they'll accept that and they'll get on with it. They don't have much life, but neither did the man come to that. I mean, it's a portrait of a terribly barren life.
0: Patricia Briceland, Nora's mother, is a pretty close match to Thompson's sketch of a Steubenville woman. She grew up in dire economic circumstances, multiple siblings, no indoor plumbing. She started having babies at 20, one after another, before splitting with Lewis, a violent alcoholic. Dina Lucas, a childhood friend of Nora's, remembers. Her parents were divorced, and
3: her mom worked a lot, so her older sister took care of them. I wouldn't call them poor, but they were...
2: The last Steubenville bit of business we should deal with is the statement Rachel made in the LA Times, that she doesn't believe Nora was raped at 10.
0: Even sisters who are close can't track each other's every move. So how can Rachel possibly know what happened to Nora in the field that day with Ricky?
2: She can't, and to be honest, it feels almost immoral to question Nora's claim.
0: To me too, so maybe we don't question it. Maybe we just acknowledge the fact that Rachel does while also acknowledging the fact that we don't see how Rachel legitimately can. Only Nora and Ricky know what went down that day. Moving on, Steubenville is obviously a brutally unhappy place for Nora. It must be with tremendous relief that she boards that Greyhound bus headed to California, even if California means more of Patricia's boyfriend, the man Nora calls Roger Hayes in her memoir.
2: Yeah, Nora's initial impression of Roger is that he's kind of creepy, kind of nice one of those aging hippie guys who doesn't realize that the 60s have ended. She's 11 when he starts masturbating over her as she sleeps.
0: Rachel, in that letter, never cast doubt on Nora's claims about Roger. And in light of the role Roger plays in Nora's later life, it seems highly unlikely that he wasn't molesting her. So yeah, the creepiness of Roger is definitely a problem and harmful. But ultimately, I think it's the niceness of Roger that's the even bigger problem and even more harmful because she does come to regard him as a substitute father.
2: Something she's in desperate need of.
0: Okay, Ashley, Nora hasn't invited us inside her head, but let's try to push our way in. Her dad hits the bottle, and sometimes her mom. She can't depend on him to protect her. Plus, he's in Steubenville and completely out of the picture. And her mom works hard and tries, but can barely fend for herself. Never mind her daughters. This is journalist Pat Jordan, who spent time with Patricia when he was writing a profile of Nora for GQ in 1990.
4: It was a reverse. She was the mother, and the mother was the child. I mean, the mother was scared, flighty, fragile, not particularly attractive. She so was at the mercy of whatever boyfriend she was with. She was a weak, weak woman. I mean, Tracy was many things. A weak was not one of them. She said she was abused by her mother's boyfriend right I'm sure it could be because the mother was the kind of woman that would attract guys who want to abuse
3: the mother
2: and in that profile Noah speaks of Patricia with a mixture of pity and contempt saying maybe my mother had dreams I don't know she's sweet and loving but not very ambitious I just throw up my hands and say okay mom if that's how you want to live. I never wanted to be like my mother. Lily, how could Noah have faith in such a person?
0: She couldn't. And Roger is, as we said, an ambiguous figure, half paternal, half predatory. He is, to a certain extent, a provider. And he isn't, according to Tracy, rough or mean. His personality, in fact, is notable for its affability. And he's the one who actually gets Patricia and the girls out of dead-ass, dead-end Steubenville, no small feat. And Nora is grateful to him for that. And though his treatment of her is periodically bad, even monstrous, it's confusingly bad and monstrous. He's not raping her in the traditional sense of the word. No, his violation of her, his rape of her, is far subtler and more insidious. He's masturbating over her in the dark when she's barely conscious. And at 11, it's possible that she doesn't know what he's doing. Because she's a sharp kid and has a working animal instinct, she probably understands that it's sexual and wrong. But mostly, I suspect, she's bewildered and upset by it. And yet it's conceivable that she's also, in this moment, discovering her power. This girl who must have felt all her life as if she had no power. Her sexuality is something men want, and if she learns to control it, maybe she can learn to control them. It's a formative experience for her, I'd imagine. Maybe the formative experience. Or the
2: deformative experience. I want to share an observation made by Nora's future co-star, Herschel Savage, about the type of woman the adult industry tends to attract. This isn't to say that I agree with Herschel's observation, but it is relevant.
5: The truth of the matter is, most of the damaged girls, which are a major percentage of the girls in the industry, are fucking hot. (laughs) Hot. I mean, whatever the reason that is, obviously, you know, using their sexual identity as a way to garner feelings of love and affection for men, which they obviously were starved of, and they become expert at it. You know, they learn how to please men. I would feel bad. I really would. Like, wow, this person's in so much pain. There was a bit of a conflict, but honestly, I mean, I couldn't have done the industry if I let that overwhelm me.
0: It's hard for me to see Tracy that way. Her personality is so guarded, so armored. The women in Herschel's story bare their throats. Tracy would never do such a thing.
2: Remember, Lily, it's Nora we're talking about now, not Tracy. And just because Nora doesn't display her damage doesn't mean it isn't there.
0: Nora, her mother and her sisters, are just getting off the bus in Hollywood. Roger picks them up in that lime green van of his and drives them to Redondo Beach, a town in the South Bay region of Greater Los Angeles, and as drastic as Steubenville, if in an entirely different way.
2: We should alert listeners, let them know that a role reversal is coming. Lily, I showed you around the valley, you'll be showing me around South Bay.
0: I spent a lot of time there this past winter, and I'll show you around with pleasure. So yes, Nora is now in Redondo, more specifically in North Redondo, a classic wrong side of the tracks type neighborhood. Mark Baxter, a friend of Nora's, conveys the poor but proud attitude that defined North Redondo, the intense feelings of tribalism.
5: I lived on Marshall Field in Green. They lived on Carnegie in Green. That's who I grew up with. And just being from our area, everybody loved each other. We were all tight-knit friends. I had every bank on every wall, on every sidewalk, patternized on my skateboard with my friends, you know, ripping all the way up, all the way down. So that's how we all piled around. There'd be like four guys and four girls, you know, storming to the beach together and then showing up, like, on the north side of the Hermosa Beach Pier.
0: One thing's for sure, it's a hell of a lot better to be broke and from a broken home in North Redondo than it is in Steubenville. If Nora's new house is as much of a shithole as her old, at least she doesn't have to be in it that much, thanks to the world-famous Southern California weather. And maybe her parents are busted up, but so are almost everybody else's. Nora enrolls in Lincoln Junior High. Just before graduating, she receives an assignment from her English teacher. This is Nora's classmate, Mike Braschino.
6: I remember her like writing this paper. It that said that's like, what you want to be at the end of eighth grade. She said she wanted to be a Playboy centerfold, and Nora was like, yeah,
2: right, get out of here. Wait a second. Nora said she wanted to be a Playboy centerfold in junior high school? She did. This would seem to indicate she knew what she was up to when she walked into Jim South's agency a year and a half later, wouldn't it?
0: Maybe. It definitely indicates that nude modeling was something she'd been seriously considering. What's more surprising to me is that the class scoffed at her ambition. Mike explains.
6: She was real homely-looking, though, in the beginning, like, in eighth grade. They made fun of her at first. She had, like, curled hair, and then she had, like, these lead, like jeans that were short pants with uh, cowboy boots, you know? And my like, cowboy boots were not in at the beach, man. You know? I was like, nah.
0: <laughs> Mike is a surfer and a wild man and a stone fox, the guy all the girls want.
6: I didn't see myself as being anything special, but I, girls were chasing me home and shit, like, you know? ripping my clothes or whatever, you know, trying to pants me in the bathroom or some weird shit. My mom is tripping on the clothes being ruined and everything and not digging it to where I don't even really come home anymore because it's like, fuck.
0: And then summer rolls around. Mike is on The Strand, a bike path that runs along the shoreline of the Santa Monica Bay. It's a big local hangout, and it's where he spots Nora.
6: Their sister was there, and... uh and then two other girls, like, cause there was like, there was four or five of them that were together. Their sister was kind of chubby, you know, but she had she had shape or I'd say she was like, torquey, kind of but you know what I mean? She wasn't, she was like on the verge of going over and being too big. I mean, if you got denied by the one sister, you're gonna probably end up going to the other sister. They all had kind of similar bathing suits on, you know, the, like the French cut bathing suit would just come out or whatever. So they all had like those one piece ones, but she was in a two piece. Like it's a regular, normal bathing suit, though, but she was just, looked way better. She was banging. She just looked like a California girl, you know, like she just switched from being that little hick or whatever she was in eighth grade to some girl on the strand that just looked really hot. You're like, (laughs) fuck.
0: Young lust. Nora and Mike are immediately all over each other.
6: We started partying, drinking like this Boone's Farm shit or whatever it was called.
0: The only hitch, Nora already has a boyfriend.
6: He was this big dude. He was older and everything. He was like a man, like a dude, you know? And I was the surfer kid, and I was like, to tell that guy, it was like, I'm, I'm dating her now. I was like, crazy. He came from like L.A. or something. He was like an Asian-looking guy with a mustache and shit. He was bigger. He was into martial arts and shit. He was kicking everybody's ass. But by the time, you know, he saw us coming from the beach or whatever, he kind of like got the picture and jumped on his BMX bike he and took off.
0: The only other hitch, Mike already has a girlfriend.
6: My girlfriend's name was, was Tanaya. Even having a girlfriend then, I was like, I, had, I was living with Girl already. I was like, fuck me.
0: Which means he and Nora really have to sneak around.
6: We were always having to, to dip and dive away from people. It would always be like some event, like the 4th of July or whatever it was, where it was like, there's people everywhere. And we were just like, yeah, let's get the fuck out of here and have that a boned out or whatever. Boned down?
0: I know. That one made my ear change angle, too. One of my favorite things about North Redondo people is that they have their own language, their own cadences, a true native tongue.
2: A bit like porn people in that respect.
0: No question. For Mike and Nora, privacy is hard to come by.
6: You couldn't drink on the Strand and stuff, so you had to get between houses and shit. And then, you know, we'd get drunk and, you know, we'd get caught, whatever, screwing between his pat. We just had sex there, you know what I mean? We, wherever we were, we'd just do that. I mean, it didn't matter. We'd just start kissing him and have sex right there.
0: Though they could get a bit of it at Nora's house, small as it is, thanks to her ingenuity.
6: She had like a little room underneath her porch, almost like a fort or whatever. If you were a guy, you'd make a fort. It was a girl and she made like a little spot where you could kick it with just, you're laying on all these stuffed animals and shit. You know what I mean? It was like... I was you're, the patty because I remember I had a broken arm from the skateboard ramp, and it was like I couldn't do. It. I could. I had to lay on my back. You know, what I mean, so it was kind of awkward and stuff. But <laughs> it's just funny because it was like we just do, We'd get through whatever to like be together for a minute or whatever. She'd always make funny remarks. I mean, she was a cool person. I probably she probably still is.
0: It's only a matter of time before Tanaya catches them.
6: The guy who I was skateboarding with at the time. He had like a station wagon and we got in the back of that thing we were partying we had a bunch of champagne and tickle pink or whatever all these weird brands my ex girlfriend from there and the guy who drives the car because you know he had finally gave it up that we were in the car and uh and then when they when she opened it we fell out and the bottle broke and we like still out. we had our backs against the door like just like a movie it was like so funny it was like it was a bust though i got yelled at and all this weird shit
0: Tanaya's memories of Nora
7: are, unsurprisingly,
0: not fond.
7: She just wasn't somebody that liked girls, I don't think. She was kind of just all about the guys.
3: I never really saw her much in school. She didn't really communicate with hardly anybody. Really standoffish, very kind of uppity and thought a lot of herself.
2: You know, Tanaya Dooley on Nora Kuzma sounds an awful lot like Ginger Lynn on Tracy Lords.
0: Yeah, Nora is as much of a man's woman as Tracy is. And, by the way, Mike Braschina won't be the last guy that Nora and Tanaya tangle over. Tanaya again.
3: The father of my children used to date her before he and I got together. I remember being at a park one time, and he was with her, and she was just kind of laying loose on her back, spread over the car, and, you know, just all into him and nobody else.
7: She was just that way at a very young age.
0: Tanaya is referring here to Rick Shaw. So summer's over. Nora starts her freshman year at Redondo Union High. That's when she meets Rick, also North Central Redondo and slightly older, a junior. They begin seeing each other. Here's Rick.
4: She was quiet around me, but um, she was definitely game, down for the crime, for whatever, you know. She was definitely sexual, make no mistake of that. I mean, that that part was definitely there. I mean, she had no problem with people being in the same room, either. There's one instance that I remember that uh, there are two other couples that were sleeping over, and she had no problem, um, was not shy at all, you know?
0: According to Rick, Nora is fine with an audience. She's not, however, fine with Rick getting together with one of her sisters.
4: There was, like, some competition between the two sisters. She passed out, like, on too drunk or something, and then I went over to the next bed. Literally from one bed to the other. That's when she decided to try my brother
0: out, you know? Nora and Rick were doomed in any case.
4: When we were partying and drinking and stuff, she would go and have a cigarette or two. And I remember I remember this because it was kind of embarrassing that she wouldn't inhale the cigarette. She just kind of hold it in her mouth after bumming the cigarette. And it just looked like it was not her smoking. You know what I'm saying? She would be a chameleon. She, Whatever her surroundings were, she would just blend in with it, you know, try to.
0: The version you just heard, Ashley, was Rick telling it to me over the phone in a formal recorded interview. And it's a little subdued. He first told it to me that day we spent together in Manhattan Beach. And the memory of Nora bumming the cigarette off one of his friends and then not inhaling got him worked up. I mean, he laughed at himself for getting worked up. But clearly, at the time, it put the shit out of him. He was a tough guy and she was fucking with his tough guy cred.
2: I find the story compelling as well because it's one of the few instances of Nora, or Tracy, slipping up.
0: So true. Because once Nora ditched the bad haircut, the rude cowboy boots, she became a hot-to-trot Southern California bad girl, as if she'd been born to the role. Here, though, she flubs. You can see the good girl underneath. This is Mark Baxter on that good girl.
5: She sat next to me in Miss Moore's class, and she was just really sweet and kind and gentle. Almost like a hippie persona, but not a hippie persona. There was something really special about her that drew everybody towards her, you know? And her beauty, it mirrored her. She's
4: just a sweetheart.
0: And this is Darren Lewis, a classmate of Nora's.
4: Nora Kuzma was completely, fully developed when we were freshmen in high school. I mean, every man on the planet would look at her when she walked by. Absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. But she was very quiet in class. Very quiet, and she kind of minded her own business pretty much. She always reminded me of being wholesome. I never looked at her in high school and said, oh, God, I want to, you know what? I treated her the way she looked. And, you know, back then, I mean, I'd put chalk on my hand and slap girls on the ass that were wearing dark pants so they could see my handprint. But she was one of the ones that I wouldn't do that to because of her demeanor and the way she looked.
0: Ashley, I feel like I need to say something for the record, on both our behalves. We're not trying to reduce Nora to simple-minded categories, good girl versus bad girl. Or I guess I did just that a minute ago, though that was tongue-in-cheek.
2: But more than that, we're not trotting out sex gossip from her junior high and high school days for fun or sport. We're trying to make a larger point here, that Nora's sexual reality was different from Tracy's sexual fiction. In her memoir, she presents her young teen self as sexually naive, Of course, she wrote about her experiences with Ricky and Roger Hayes. Those, though, were non-consensual. And as far as a partner that she chose had sex with willingly, there's only one, she says. And that's her high school sweetheart, the boy she calls Dean Weatherly. And it's to Dean that she effectively loses her virginity. Here's the passage from underneath it all. I was a sophomore when we started going all the way. The first time was on our one year anniversary. We had sex that afternoon and it wasn't nearly as awful as the first time. I was drunk enough to feel brave. He was gentle, and it didn't go on for very long.
0: Going all the way. The language she's using, it's middle class, prissy proper, white bread. The customs are too. Making the guy wait for a year, being relieved when it doesn't go on for very long. That's not Nora or North Redondo.
2: Yet where's boning down?
0: Where indeed. Oh, and by the way, Dean Weatherly does exist, except his name is Troy Matherly. And we'll get to Troy, just not yet.
5: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
7: Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
0: So Nora was a wild girl by most reckonings, but not by the reckonings of her time and place. And that's the other point we're trying to make. Tracy Lords comes out of Nora Kuzma, and Nora Kuzma comes out of the 80s and comes out of South Bay North Redondo. Here's Mark Baxter on South Bay North Redondo mating rituals.
5: So it's impossible to just have like one girlfriend when they had so many friends. We'd be, like, sitting, like, in a place like this, playing quarters and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, there's a little eye contact going on. And then the girl would be like, oh, God, I don't want to be with him because of his girlfriend. And they don't realize that the girlfriend don't care. She's not tripping. She's got friends crawling all over her. What are you doing? You want to hang out at the beach for, like, 15 minutes? We were outdoor sexual people. We had more sex outside, probably, than inside. Because we really didn't care if anybody saws anyways. You know what I mean? Like.
0: It's no parents, no rules, no problems.
5: My mom would be like, now I'm going to be gone for a couple of days. Mike's going to be here, you know, like the older brother or something like that. So all his friends would be there. My friends would be there. The furniture would go out into the front yard. The band would be playing and it'd be like an all day. I mean, that was kind of how it was. man.
2: It's an adult free world. What teen wouldn't want to live in Redondo?
0: But maybe there's a little more to it than that. Maybe there's a lot more to it than that. Because somehow, during this period, this little podunk beach town becomes the secret psychic center of America's youth, covertly and mysteriously transmitting its spirit and emotions to young receptors across the land. Mark Baxter again.
3: You gotta remember
5: Southern California guys like me and the rest of us, we set the trends for the entire country. When it comes to surfing, skating, uh, backyard fighting, all, everything that goes into that world that we're a part of, we really do feel like we've dominated all the MMA, all the surfing, all the you know, pro skating too. So we're always trying to outdo everybody that was around us.
0: And the Redondo girls were no slouches in the trend-setting department either.
5: 36, 26, 34, basically. That's what our whole school was full of. Blonde hair, like, like all the girls that, like the surfer, skater, punk rocker type tough kids were attracted to.
0: These girls weren't just attracting the surfer, skater, tough kids. These girls were everyone's type. This is the era of California girls. David Lee Ross' cover of the Beach Boys tune and the widely popular 1985 video that accompanied it, filmed just miles away in Venice. An ode to bikini-clad, beach bunny hard bodies. The whole country was wishing they could all be California girls and Baywatch babes.
2: The whole world. Baywatch was huge in England.
0: Future Baywatch babe, Brandy Ledford, was one year behind Nora at North Redondo Union High. Here's Mark Baxter on Brandy.
5: Oh, God, man, she was flawless. Brandy was my girlfriend for a minute. Just for a minute, though.
0: Maybe less. That's the flawless creature herself, Brandy Ledford, Here's Brandy on what it meant to be a South Bay girl.
7: The way the Kardashians, everyone wants to look like them now. <laughs> you know, with their lips and their butt injections and
3: hair. That was so true for Baywatch.
6: It really was. Pam and Gina, Nicole, all those girls, we all wanted that look. and But I just grew up looking like that.
4: OP shorts, dolphin shorts. I wore those clothes every day just to go to school, to go to the beach, to go to the park, to go to drill team rehearsal.
0: And then there's the South Bay music scene. Here's Mark Baxter.
5: Going down to the beach, the place was full of the toughest guys, you know what I mean? And, and, and the skateboarding was going on. It looked like freaking, like a circus down there. And the place was packed with the hottest chicks, man. Packed with the hottest chicks. So, of course, all the glam rock, heavy metal. I mean, we're talking people taking bus rides all the way from D.C., Virginia, New York, coming to Hollywood. And then, of course, they would just start migrating south. And once they got into Manhattan Hermosa Beach, that was it. They didn't need to go any further because that's where we were all at.
0: This is Michelle Devella, a North Redondo girl.
7: Everything was just one big party around here you know, bands and parties, and they would just throw a lot of backyard parties and stuff. So, you know, bands like Motley Crue, Rat, Dawkins, they were locals, so.
0: Could be, though, that Motley Crue, with its hairspray and eye makeup and Pretty Boy lead singer, failed to perfectly express the mood and sensibility of the North Redondo boys, even if the band was local. Here's Mark Baxter.
5: Music works on Artesia, Jack Russell's spot. You've heard of him? The singer for Great White. And Jack knew everybody in the glam rock world. And in the back room where they had just all the massive parties and some of the things that they would say, like, no, Mark, you and your friends are not allowed back here. You guys freaking destroy everything, man. We're more like putting holes in walls and socking people in the face and getting blood on everything.
0: Could be that Mark and the North Redondo boys wanted music as savage and reckless and free as they were. Music that was a step beyond glam rock and heavy metal, music that ran on rage, testosterone, frenzy, and flamboyance. Music that wasn't music at all, but one long primal scream. Hardcore punk rock.
2: In case punk rock wasn't hardcore enough for you,
0: and it's a homegrown phenomenon, born and bred in South Bay. Rick Shaw remembers.
4: Punk rock came through here like uh, like a freight train. It was all about us, all kinds of like just crazy bands that were coming out of here all at once. And it just took over like that, you know, um, it's kind of just like a anti, uh, anything authority. That was what was appealing is like, we're not listening to it anymore. You know, you got to figure like parents back then were into like putting hands on kids in the, in the world that we grew up on. When we get to that age, when we're 13 or 14 years old, and all of a sudden we're fighting back now, the music and everything just angled right to to us. You know, It it was tailored for us, you know?
5: This right here from this, all this? Yeah. This used to be all the backside of the church.
0: In January, Mark Baxter took me on a tour of South Bay showed me the hardcore punk rock hotspots, including the church, since torn down, a pretty little bistro type restaurant in its place.
5: You walked all the way around it, and then that's where the whole setup was, where the bands would be playing, Wasted Youth, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Germs, that was like the scariest place to go, just down that little strip right there on that yeah. alley, because that's where all the Mohawks and the shaved heads were, and all the broken bones, and the fighting was going on, but it used to say, Welcome to hell, and it had a giant hole, and you climbed in the hole, and all the windows and doors were boarded up, and you could just hear punk rock coming out of it.
2: So, Nora's gone from the hinterland, the Styx, Steubenville, Ohio, where nothing ever happens and nothing ever will, to the white-hot cultural center.
0: Right, only she's off to the side. For starters, hardcore punk rock is not unisex music. It's mostly a guy thing. Made by guys, listened to by guys. And then there's her geography. Here's Mark Baxter on the South Redondo Kids.
5: They drove Mercedes and BMWs and they were all, you know, they lived in big homes, you know, just immaculate lifestyles and stuff. These are the kind of people that pulled into our school. The South Redondo rich girls couldn't upscale Nora's demeanor and beauty. She couldn't compete with them because of money and, and status, you know.
0: At school, the two groups, North and South, eye each other warily across the economic divide.
5: Like the misfits on Misfit Island. Good looks and charm, sure, but we weren't driving Mercedeses, and our parents weren't doctors and architects.
0: But the divide wasn't quite so vast for the North Redondo boys. They were surfers, rebels, outlaws. And the poor boy juvenile delinquent figure has always had about him a dark and musky glamour a sexual cachet. His glory is his defiance, but there's really no female equivalent to him. Poor and defiant girls are typically viewed as sexually exciting, but also as unsavory and possibly unclean, as trash basically, disposable.
2: And the pain of rejection of having the classy world sneer at you is, I think, sharper for the poor girl than it is for the poor boy and is felt more keenly, especially if the poor girl in question is intelligent and sensitive, and Nora is both.
0: Nora is about to get a great consolation prize, though. True love. Next time on Once Upon a Time in the Valley.
4: At nighttime, we go to lay on the sand and look at the stars and go swimming in the ocean late at night. It was just me and her. We would do everything, everything together. Inseparable, inseparable.
0: This has been a presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran and me, Lily Analik. Directed by Zach Levitt. Created and written by me. Produced by Ashley West. Edited and mastered by Chris Basil, Bill Schultz, Perry Crowell, and Ian Mont. Theme music and original score by Joel Goodman. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malangone. Field Recording by Rich Berner. Artwork, Marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Once Upon a Time in the Valley is hosted by me and Ashley West. Thanks for listening.
1: It's Sophia Franklin,
6: and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini-series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us, every Monday. Bringing back all of the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.